Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Blind Spot. We are having a special episode today because I have one of my teachers, Sarah Payton, here, who is running a certification program on resonant healing, and I've been working with Sarah for about three years now and became so enamored with the work that I enrolled in her certification program a year ago. And we are actually scheduled to finish the first year of the intensive part of training in about three weeks. So this modality has been so transformational for me, and I'm so excited to be on this certification journey and to be introducing it to communities that maybe haven't been exposed yet. And I'm still a student. I'm about three years in on this journey of working with Sarah and just have so many questions and what really wanted her voice to be here so that the listeners of our community could check out her offerings just to orient everyone. Her website is sarahpayton.com and she has so many offerings there that go from a webinar that you can just download, which are like 90 minutes to two hours or different live offerings or recorded class offerings. And you'll see that she has a very extensive library where you can search by subject matter for whatever is interesting you. So regardless of whether you choose to explore it or not, uh, check it out. I think you'll find there's a lot of great resources. So without further ado, I just want to welcome Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, what a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. So just to orient everyone, in the Enneagram community, we all are really curious about our Enneagram type and our passions and our fixations and our instinctual stack. And I also happen to love Myers-Briggs. And all of these are typologies that, for me, has helped me to gain a lot of clarity and understanding about the places that I get tripped up. But the reason that I'm so excited to have you here is that we know that once we discover these areas of trauma, there are a lot of different modalities with which we can work with trauma, and resonant healing is one of these modalities. And I was wondering if you'd speak a little bit, Sarah, about the history of resonant healing. How did you first come across it? And my impression is that you're really doing something novel, and even this certification program It's just the second class that's going through your training, and it has some similarities with other healing modalities, but there's definitely something unique about it. So if you would talk a little bit about how you came to develop this and how you would describe it to somebody that hasn't heard about resonance before, I think that would be really helpful. Oh, what I think that resonance does is it kind of reaches into a space that's previously been kind of implicit, a space that's been referenced and referred to. Whenever the neuroscientists, whenever the relational neuroscientists talk about how relationship changes us and how warm uh, connections with others create neural connections in our brain, it's so inspiring. But they never say, and this is how you do it. (laughs) Yeah. So we're left as humans kind of fumbling a bit with our warmth, with our care. But unless we begin to study what kinds of language support neural change and warmth and the growth of relational neurons, and what kinds of language kind of stop neural change and the growth of neurons in their tracks, then uh, then we're... We're just guessing. We're just guessing. And so what I do is I go in and search for the research that shows us what changes brains. And I'm very interested in any of the research, the neuroscience researchers who look at trauma and who look at the impact of trauma and who also look at what's happening with brains 
that have lived through trauma but are not suffering brains. So how do we get from a suffering brain that, that is living with post-traumatic stress disorder, that is living with anxiety, how do we get from those places to the non-suffering brain places? The pl- I have a friend who says, let's make our brains a, a good place to live. <laughs> yeah, and I love that one of the things that I'll just alert listeners to, we have this default mode network. I learned about this from you where we sort of, they've studied the default mode network from my understanding by putting people in scanners and saying, don't think about anything, like clear your mind. And then it's sort of the automatic thoughts that start to run inside of us. It's it's sort of like that thing where you tell somebody, don't think about a pink elephant, you know, (laughs) immediately start imagining pink elephants. So they can't say, don't think about anything because that will be defeating. But they'll say, here, do this algebra problem. And then they'll they'll finish the algebra problem, and then there'll be a little moment of silence before they get the next algebra problem. So what the scientists are looking at is what's the what happens in the space between focused attention? Mm, yeah. And so when we're just resting, we can kind yeah. of start to notice where is my mind, and is this a wonderful place to be, or is this a scary or yeah. shame invoking or an uncomfortable place to be? And that sort of directs us to how much warmth we can hold ourselves, how much trauma we may have experienced, and things yeah. like this. Yeah, I often think of the the default mode network. Uh, some of you may remember the film Edward Scissorhands, where the boy has, instead of hands, he has knives, and and his face is scarred from inadvertently cutting himself. This, I think, is the traumatized default mode network. We have instead of having arms that can reach out and hold us, we have razor blades that scar Mm. us and cut us, all in the service of trying to take care of ourselves. I mean, if I beat myself up for being lazy, I'm I'm really saying, I'm so scared, Sarah, about the depression that's chasing your heels. Um, I'm worried that we're going to get mired in it. I don't want you to stop. That's what our default mode network is saying, but it uses tragic, tragic ways to express itself against us. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you're bringing language in to use for healing, because one of the things that really landed with me, and I've just been doing a series with Belinda Gore on object relations, and we're talking about how so much of this trauma is formed in relationship, and that we need relationships in order to heal the traumatic moments that we've experienced. Yeah, we really do. And so here again, you know, we're saying we need relationships to heal the traumatic moments. What kind of relationships? Mm-hmm. What would the other person say? How would the other person be? What kinds of things would the other person say that would make us feel hopeless and helpless about relationship? Because uh, one of the things that we'll do with each other to try to love each other is we'll give each other advice. <laughs> Yeah, we want so much to contribute to each other, and so we we want to tell each other what to do. But that's then it has to be interpreted and decoded. We get we could say to somebody who's giving us advice, "Do you love me so much? And you just mm-hmm. want me to be well? Do you want me to have all the information at my disposal that's going to help take care of me?" Yeah. That's really what they're doing with their advice, but. The fact that we have to decode love all the time makes us a little lonely in this world. Yeah, and I love that you've coined this term. I hadn't heard it before you. Was alarmed aloneness? Was this a term that you came yeah. upon? Yeah. yeah. And when I heard you say that, now granted, I'm a heart-centered type, and alarmed aloneness is any of us can experience, but it's sort of one of those core wounds that we identify with. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that's what's happening when there's this relational rupture. When we talk about the Enneagram, we talk about these triads, and there seem to be certain types that are more sensitive to the rage circuit, and certain types that are more sensitive to the fear circuit, and certain types that are more sensitive to shame, grief, or alarmed aloneness. And um, while we acknowledge that, of course, we all have all of these emotions, when we start to look at our structure, what's been really interesting to me is that I can 
recognize that I'm going to probably have a cluster of unconscious contracts that are activating certain circuits more than others. And that's what I find these maps to be helpful for. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And alarmed aloneness. Yeah. We, um, I learned from you also about the work of Jak Panksepp and the effect of neuroscience and about these different circuits. Would you speak for a moment just about uh, what we mean by an emotional circuit and what Jak was looking at? Yes. Uh, Jak Panksepp and his co-researcher, Douglas Watt, who comes and speaks for our resonance summit every mm. year. So now we'll be with us. And that's in March, right? If people yeah. want to check it out, it's free yeah. and oh, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. He'll be back this year to talk about the circuits and empathy. So oh, great. Um, so Jak Panksepp was a marvelous researcher of emotions. So his so in science they call emotions affects. So they Jak Panksepp was called an affective researcher, affective neuroscientist. So there's there's Jak Panksepp trotting through his life. Uh, he he was discovering that animals, just like humans, have different pathways, um, stable, long term shared by all mammal pathways that different emotions travel on. So sort of like bus routes in the mammalian brain. So, and this is what you were referring to when you're saying some people on the Enneagram are more connected to the fear circuit. This is the bus route of fear. It travels in a particular place in the brain. It runs on a different fuel. One of the main important neurotransmitters for the fear circuit is glutamate. Uh, in particular, uh, uh, the benzodiazepines. So, you know, people prescribe benzodiazepines to help deal with fear, but we have endogenous benzodiazepines, which are produced by our own brains that are supposed to take care of our fear. But if we live in situations where it's really dangerous, and many of us grew up with domestic violence, that is really dangerous. So that would give a brain a sense that it's difficult to resolve fear. The endogenous benzodiazepines might not be sufficient to ever give a person a sense that they can really feel calm and safe. So they might take external benzodiazepines to help manage anxiety and fear, for example. So there are, there are seven circuits of emotion and motivation that Zyakpanksep delineated in his work, and one of them is fear, and another one, really important one, is seeking. So getting things done, making sure what needs to happen happens, having energy. Where's that in the Enneagram? Is that a particular, is that like foundational for all the pieces of the Enneagram, or is that one in particular that... I love that you brought that up. Um, so I actually have another interview with a young man in Sweden who just finished medical school and has really taken with this. And he actually found Jak Pengsepp's work and wrote a book called The Neurobiology of the Enneagram. And oh, he has, isn't it great? Yeah. <laughs> and so I was so excited when I did the interview with him. I had no idea. All I knew was about the book. And, you know, I love relational neuroscience. And it's literally like in this moment of the interview, I found out that like his book was all about Jak Pengsepp's work oh. as well. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And like the joy at just seeing all of this intersect. Because I think one of the things that we're so curious about is the biology of this, because on one level, how do we work with it from multiple modalities? There's, you know, the biology that's going on. There's the emotional center that's going on. There's the cognitive center that's going on. And as we know, they're all interrelated and they're all having feedback loops. And I know that he and I are particularly interested in it from like a medical standpoint and how do we help our patients. But, you know, for me, as a primary care doctor, I sometimes say that in this affluent Chicago suburb, you know, I'm often not dealing with life or death things in my patients moment by moment, mm -hmm. but there are so many manifestations of physical symptoms in the body that are the result of problems going on in the heart, mind, or soul because of the trauma that we've experienced. So this really feels important to me because 
I don't often have, you know, I can give somebody a benzodiazepine who's in an anxiety attack, but as soon as the benzodiazepine wears off, the fear is still there. So we're dealing with it in a reactive way, as opposed to what I'm now calling upstreaming, which is looking at what are all these factors and how do we work with what's happening there. And I know one of your modalities is time travel, where we actually, I want to use the term kind of like guided imagery. I don't know how you would describe it to somebody that hasn't experienced it, but it's basically having a resonant healer help you to identify those moments when the wound may have happened and going back in some way and dealing with what happened upstream that is now manifesting as in this example, the anxiety or fear right now. Yes, that's beautiful. And you asked about the seeking circuit. So this is interesting to me. In the neurobiology of the Enneagram, which I have not finished reading, so I want to be careful that I might change my thoughts. I have so many books going right now. But he specifically is also integrating what we call the instinctual drives. Mm -hmm. And the three instinctual drives that we talk about in the Enneagram community are self-preservation, instinct, which is the instinct to stay alive, the social instinct, which is the instinct to have belonging, and the sexual instinct, which is the instinct for reproduction, as well as creativity. And I know that you just finished a series on the sexuality circuit. So I know that you're coming at things from your frame, which is different than the Enneagram frame, but there's so much overlap because I think that we're all talking about humans and these are just different frameworks for talking about a universal human experience, I think. So it sounds like the drive for survival may very well, to some degree, coordinate. With seeking circuit? Seeking, yeah. So that that is the drive for social connection would coordinate with the care circuit. Uh Uh-huh. Drive for sexuality and the emergence of self would Uh coordinate with, perhaps with sexuality in the Enneagram. Yeah, and Saleh is the gentleman's name. He oh. actually put also play in the care and play in the social instinctual circuit. Oh, fun. Yeah, and I think we could put play in sexuality, though, too. Don't you think that play might overlap in these two instinctual well, needs? You know, I, I, just for me personally, my favorite sexuality is one that combines care and play and sexuality. Yeah, sweetness and warmth and oxytocin and laughter and discovery and fun and excitement. You know, all those things coming together make a really delicious physical experience of intimacy and sexuality. Yeah. And Saleh talks about the seeking circuit being related to the self-preservation instinct, just like you led to, because obviously it has to do with things like finding food and warmth and comfort and safety. But if in that interview, what popped into my mind is that it feels to me like the seeking circuit is activated even when I'm in my social instinctual drive and I'm wanting a certain promotion. So I'm doing things to get that promotion or to get recognition or to be seen or heard. Well, Pegsep sees seeking as underlying everything, that when it's in order... Everything else can can be fluid and active. Got it. Yeah. So it very well may be that you would, I don't know if you see that in the Enneagram, this underlying life energy. Well, that's how it lands and lives oh. inside of me because we have yeah. the nine points and each one of the nine points is sort of oriented to a different attention or priority. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel like the seeking circuit activates to meet the needs of that particular person. So I agree with you that it's kind of always there. And that goes along with the fact that the self-preservation instinct is always there because what is survival and what is it that our ego is identifying with, I will die if I don't have this, which isn't necessarily a base food, shelter, water kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Almost, I'm sort of having an image of a, of a burbling spring that underlies the nine, each of the nine. Because uh, I know that in the Enneagram, you can have the, your best incarnation, yes. <laughs> your best manifestation of your type, and you can have your sort of the ways that you, you may have been impacted by trauma. 
yes. that make your manifestation of your tri- type less complete, less of course. Less yeah. yeah, and so when we talk about an Ania type, um, you know, we talk about the passion, which the opposite is the virtue. So when we're not hooked by our passion, we're manifesting a specific virtue, or we talk about a mental fixation. And when we're not hooked by that, we're manifesting what we call a holy idea. So this is all directly related to how do we look at that little traumatized part so that we can unhook from it and be living a life of virtue and manifesting holy ideas and really connecting with essence, which is that beautiful part that lives inside of all of us that sometimes we don't see because I know we both are also students of Marshall Rosenberg and in nonviolent communication. And we learn to see all behaviors as sometimes simply tragic strategies of how to meet needs. Like our default mode network telling us we're lazy. Exactly. Right. So there's nothing wrong with any of it. It's just kind of knowing where we are and what we're doing and how to work with it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And so when, for example, there's nothing wrong with the seeking circuit, it drives us to get important things. So even if, you know, we're noticing that I would love to, you know, have a promotion or I would love to date that person or I would love to buy that item, really what's coming on here is what's sort of the energy around it. And specifically, you talk about this term like predatory aggression, which combines seeking circuit and the rage circuit. I think we all have the experience of somebody sort of trying to get something from us that we're not sure we want to give, and Mm. that that may have that element of like predatory aggression in it that our body's reacting to. Yes, and and certainly Yakpanksep would completely differentiate uh, predatory aggression and rage, two different circuits, that predatory aggression is sort of, you know, I mean, I know that in the Enneagram, as you said, there can be the passions pulling you away from the... From the holy idea? From the virtue, passion, the, virtue, holy idea, uh, and fixation. That's just how we talk about it. So probably what we see with predatory aggression is the way that our best life energy devolves mm-hmm. into an energy that doesn't hold others as mattering. Yeah. So whenever I move into predatory aggression, I'm prioritizing something else over the other person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Rage is a natural body response to to needing to protect resources or territory or... Okay. But but predatory aggression is the loss of of the ability to perceive harm that we're doing. Okay. to others, which is a constant theme in our world. Every time that we're pulled into trying to get something done, we'll be prioritizing others. I mean, prioritizing our goal over relationships. So it's a very interesting dance that we're always in, in the seeking circuit. Can we, in a way, the question becomes, can we toggle enough into relationality? Can we integrate care and seeking so that as we prioritize things, we remember that others exist? Yes. It's, a, it's quite an interesting uh, dilemma. I think it's one of our central dilemmas of being human. I'm not sure exactly how it would show up in the Enneagram, but I bet it's there. It is there, actually, and I am doing this series with Belinda Gore on object relations, and we talk about when we get stuck in an object relation, what happens is we objectify the individual, and I think that this is a big overlap about what we're talking about right here, because when somebody feels objectified, my experience of that is I don't feel like you're seeing me in my whole humanity. I'm now becoming an object to help you meet a goal, and that feels yucky. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. It does feel yucky. Yeah. yeah. And I so, yes. oh, go ahead. Oh, when it happens to me, I object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, because I hear you talking about these two, um, the instrumental brain and the part of our brain that can provide context and resonance. And that instrumental brain, my understanding is that 
That's more the left hemisphere. That's the get things done part of the brain. Definitely the get things done part of the brain. And Ian McGilchrist, who I love, really makes a beautiful case for it being largely the left hemisphere. Ruth Lanius, who I also love so much, who's a trauma researcher, says, Sarah, it's not that cut and dried. Okay. (laughs) So I don't so much talk about the left hemisphere as much as I talk about the instrumental brain, because then that could include parts of the right hemisphere that are also contributing to trying to get things done. Thank you for clarifying that. That's Mm -hmm. really helpful for me, because sometimes, you know, we lump things, and then for people that are trying to find like the science behind it, they'll be like, well, no, that's not quite right. And so a lot of times we're using these words to more represent that part of ourselves that wants to get things done versus that part of ourself that is remembering that I'm living in a context of other humans and other animals and the entire earth and that we're all trying to figure out how to meet needs without causing each other harm. Oh gosh, yes. And so dopamine is the main fuel. Remember, we were talking about how the circuits are like bus lines and they run on different fuels and fear was benzodiazepines. And here we are with our with our bus line for the seeking circuit. It runs on dopamine. So whenever we're caught in a dopamine flow, we have to be able to also integrate oxytocin and vasopressin and endogenous opioids all of which are involved in the care circuit and the sexuality circuit. We need to be able to integrate our sense of both ourselves as emergent beings and others as mattering. Mm, yeah. You know, the other thing in the Enneagram, everything breaks down into groups of three. And one of the three types are assertive types, which are known to just kind of the seeking circuit gets activated. They're very sensitive to the dopamine and glutamate, and they kind of just move right in. It's like a habitual response. Yeah. And then there are withdrawn types that when the same, when sensory information comes in, there can almost be some overwhelm. And for me, this is more of like uh, a freeze response of kind of like pulling back because it's like a little overwhelming as opposed to the assertive types seem to have more of a fight or like a fixing or tending, befriending response of kind of moving in and the dependent types as well. So there are like six of the types that respond with sort of moving in energy and three of the types that tend to have a response of sort of backing away. Mm. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting to see how it does seem like there's some biology at play. What do you think about that in terms of, you know, our response? Do you believe that all of this happens you know, once we come into the world, or do you believe that we're kind of born with a nervous system that is wired to choose a certain response pattern once we're put into situations of stress? I know that's a complicated that's question, but how, how do you talk about that? A wonderful question. Um, m- one of my most beloved teachers is named Bonnie Badnock, and she's the author of the book Being a Brainwise Therapist, which is such a beautiful book. And she says that she has a sense that people are born with tendencies. And I I think we are too. I think we're born with tendencies. I don't think that babies come out as a blank slate out of the birth canal. I think there's already a lot that's happened. (laughs) I agree. Transgenerationally. um, And also, of course, experiences in the womb, all kinds of experiences in the Mm -hmm. Anything from what's been the atmosphere of the home, how much safety did mom have, how much warmth was mom receiving from the dad person if they're in a a regular uh, heteronormative (laughs) connection or or the other person, the second parent, if there's um, more variety in the gender sense of the parents. But um, there's so much that goes into babies. And then I think there's something mysterious. I think there's something, some kind of bit of the infinite that comes kind of independently of all that, that that, that uses the the material <laughs> that it's given to find find meaning in this life. That's mm. a bit of my philosophy, but that's the way I see it. I love that. I love that you're bringing in the transgenerational effects. I know that you do a lot of work 
with the ancestors or the the family line and their I learned about this with Mark Wolin, the book It Didn't Start yes, With it You. Didn't start with you. It's such yeah. a beautiful book. I love Mark. Yeah. And just the understanding. I, I found this bit to be so interesting. I'm sure you're familiar. I'm just going to review it with like the listeners of this study where they took these four mice or rats and they would flood the cage with like a certain scent. And then unfortunately they would get an electric shock. And so yeah. they were basically creating trauma for this animal. Love cherry blossoms. Mm, yeah. So something kind of beautiful, but then yeah. it was paired with a shock. Yeah. And then they would obviously discover that after this happened a few times, they didn't even need to give the shock, but that with just the smell, there was this nervous system response. Yeah. And what I found to be so interesting is that when they then bred these um, mice or rats, that it took three generations before that response was extinguished. So even though the child or the grandchild of that animal did not ever receive an electrical shock, the smell of cherry blossoms still activated the nervous system in a yes. fear-based way. So what happened to our grandparents? You know, how are we carrying the messages uh, from their lives, from the ways that history impacted them? Such a, a, a meaningful and rich place to, to, to explore. Yeah. The thing that came up for me as I was you know, just reviewing, one of the things we do is look at these unconscious contracts. This is a piece of your work that is really beautiful because sometimes we'll discover that we have a certain habit or we have a certain tendency and we can have that like clarity in our mind that's watching ourselves do this thing. And we're like, why am I doing that? And it can take this unraveling and this exploration to kind of discover that we've made an agreement somewhere along the line because there's something that's like deeply important to ourselves. Yeah. Why are we late? Why are we always late? Such an interesting question. Uh, one time I was working with a man who was always late and he discovered as we worked, uh, it's almost like I use the word discover, but it's almost more like remembered. And he remembered that there had been, uh, when he was a teenager, there had been a uh, a therapist who was very cruel to him about being late and that he decided that he would never be on time again <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. as a kind of a great FU gesture yeah. in response to having his autonomy and his, you know, dignity so impacted. So, you know, we're doing these strange things in response to, you know, sort of like your idea of upstream. It's like the upstream experience was of being humiliated and yeah. the person was like never again yeah who cares i actually have that yeah. contract i'm still working on it but yeah <laughs> oh, not being, with not ever being on time yeah i have two parents who if you're not early you're late oh and you know i have a i mean you know if it really matters to me like the interview with you today like oh. i will be on time but it's not uncommon for me to be five minutes late. And it's really funny because there's a part of my personality that really wants to be effective and get things done. But there's also that part of my personality that's developed this habit of being five minutes late. And I definitely think I'm, I actually haven't done time travel with this one. So it's great that you bring that up because I, I've actually made the cognitive awareness that there are so many experiences of my parents responding to being late in a way that wasn't beautiful for my nervous system. Yeah. And to remember that that's a piece that I can work with is just really fun for me to discover in this moment. Oh, that's wonderful. And for other listeners who may also have this but not quite be resonating, there are so many places that this can be true. Like, um, for example, we could have an experience of never being able to be on time because we're always trying to get the last thing done. It's like I'll always finish one more thing. Yeah. It, and and transitions can be hard. So it can be hard to stop the thing before. And that can be where the contract is rather than like a contract to be late. Or there can be a fear of the future, that that it's hard to move into the future to anticipate dreadful things from the future, based usually on very good historical evidence that we had horrible things happen, 
So, so we can, it, it, we never quite know until we begin to really follow the body. What is the promise that the body has made to our essential self, to the core sense of being? That what is that promise that the body has made to try to care for the essential self? And we make these promises when we're tiny, before we have a, a lot of neurons that could provide a more grown-up adult, mature, balanced response to the world. We're just trying to make sure that we, that we get through with some measure of dignity. Some measure of dignity is, dignity is of huge importance. Yeah. And so just understanding that whatever it is we're struggling with, that it makes sense that we have this struggle. Mm-hmm. And part of the work is discovering, well, yeah, where did that get set up? And now yeah. how can I, in a, in a way that my body can actually connect with, yeah. how can I re-experience that in a way that there can be more holding? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I love, um, you said in one of your teachings, um, any conversation that like kind of goes over and over in our mind is like a conversation that we were too alone or any memory that like circles back with experiences of shame or fear or rage is yet again, another moment that we were too alone. So what would it be like to go re-experience that moment with accompaniment and resonance? Yes, we are so exquisitely made to receive resource and brain strength and resilience from from other humans. But if the humans that we've been with have been difficult, <laughs> if their love has been hard to decode. <laughs> <laughs> which, it, which, like, and even if we have great parents, there are still these moments where yeah. we're missed. So it's, like, yeah. important to say that, like, some of us have capital T trauma in our pasts, and all of us have these lowercase t traumas where we're missed in ways that really deeply matter. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what we can tell. I love it that you're bringing this up. We can tell from things that recycle and recycle and recycle. Oh, you know, what we often think is this is proof of our badness. (laughs) Yeah. But no, it's, it's a sign that we were too alone and that we need accompaniment. And what's so wonderful about the human brain is that the amygdala, the part that appears to hold those emotional memories, doesn't have any capacity to timestamp, which of course makes the memories flood us over and over again, but also means that the amygdala won't know that we're, that we're not three years old to go back and do a time travel. Yeah. The amygdala will go, oh, there's somebody with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a marvelous thing about the human brain that we can restore well-being and resilience for our lovely uh, and beleaguered brains. Yeah. When well, I wanted to introduce this concept that I learned from you about the window of welcome, mm. because this is another way that, you know, it's it's easy to see like, oh yeah, if I grew up in a home with domestic violence, of course that can be traumatic. But what was really illuminating for me is that we also get traumatized if there isn't a window of welcome from the important people in our lives when we're forming these patterns. So the way that I was understanding it is that when we're little babies and small children, that in order to belong, you know, stay in our tribe, please mom and dad or whoever our caretakers were, that we have this tendency to monitor and edit the amount of emotion that this person can be with. Because if we show up with some kind of big emotional expression and we see our mom or our dad or whoever that important person is turn away from us. I love how you explained that there's this like electrochemical shock inside the system because cortisol goes up, endogenous opioids of attachment go down, and it's just a terrible feeling that is experienced as traumatic inside the body, even if nothing happened to us on the outside. Yeah, and we can all kind of find our way into this for you know because our baby experience is so long ago it's hard to (laughs) hard to remember impossible to remember mostly so we won't know how important it was for us as a baby that we laughed and our mother turned away but we can think of ourselves like think of yourself in a friend group 
if you think something's funny and you make a big laugh and everybody else is like <laughs> yeah. looking sideways at you, like what the heck's going on? There's this moment of like, often for many people, there's a moment of shock and horror and shame and, oh, I'm too big. Uh, or my sense of humor is wrong or no one could possibly understand me. And all of those things are what happens for babies. Over and over again, the primary language that a baby is functioning in for the first two and a half, three years of life is their right hemispheres, their emotional expression, their expression of self. To what degree are the people around them able to celebrate and enjoy and notice and reflect their emotions? Yeah. Uh, When there's nobody there or when people have... No ability to reflect with celebration or appreciation or saying to the baby, of course you're angry, you make sense. Then the baby draws the conclusion, not that there's anything wrong with their parents. No, babies never believe there's anything wrong with their parents. They immediately start to believe there's something wrong with them. Yeah, and this can manifest even with like fixing energy. Like if I'm crying and now my mom's nervous system gets really activated and she's, you know, doing all of these things to soothe me, I might get the message that my grief isn't okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we can really look in to ourselves and be like, how comfortable am I with my grief? How comfortable am I with my rage or my fear? And that can give us really important information about what kind of information was encoded in those early years. Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting and magical that we can find these early experiences still here with us and still, as I said, resolvable, still accompaniable, still transformable. We can still release the unconscious contracts that we have, never to let anyone see ourselves, never to let anyone see us cry, for example, or never to be angry or to always be angry or to never relinquish our fears so that we can be hypervigilant and stay safe. There are so many very foundational unconscious contracts we can make that will keep us trapped, I think, uh, in the negative manifestation of our true selves. Yeah, and I love how you named that these things can even happen like in utero or during birth. There was one process that I was doing because I know that my birth was, uh, everything was coming too fast and I went into distress And so my mom had to have general anesthesia and I didn't get to be with her until, you know, four or five hours, like after birth. And there was just this sense that like my connection with alarmed aloneness, this like image of myself as this little baby, like in a old fashioned hospital, like alone in a bassinet, we can see how things that of course our parents had no control over but that could have been really disruptive for that little baby, even in those first moments of how we enter the world. Yeah. Are we, do we have to come to terms with being all alone right away? Yeah. Be better if we didn't have to. Yeah. To, to make those, you know, very early nervous system contracts, I will not expect anyone to come. Yeah. I will not expect there to be others in the world. Yeah. Before we go, Sarah, I wanted to touch on the disgust circuit because I know that you added this one to Yak's first seven circuits. Would you speak a little bit about how that came to you? And is there research or science or like explain to us a little bit about why we now have an eighth circuit? (laughs) Well, uh, one of the things that I was trying to do was to bring together Paul Ekman's work on facial expressions and distinct facial expressions together with Yak Pongsep's work on the circuits. And I was very confused because there's very clearly a facial expression for disgust that's distinct and different from any other facial expression, but Yak did not include disgust as a circuit. Now, right before he was dying, people were asking him to add disgust as a circuit, but he was refusing. But I wonder if he had lived, you know, a couple more years, if he would have gone, all right, it's a circuit because we can, it has its own neurotransmitters. It has its own pathway in the brain and it has its own facial expression. As I began to work with it, it occurred to me that disgust is of huge importance for our natural fluid sense of what's too much for us. 
We live in a world where people are continually overwhelmed, where people are always trying to be in relationship with a world where it's like trying to drink out of a fire hose to live in today's world. News is happening so quickly. There's such a huge flow of information. The internet is relentless and impossible to consume. Everything is overflowing. And and so how do we manage that? We manage that with a healthy disgust circuit that says, oh, this is too much for me right now. But so many people have impacts to their disgust circuit from trauma because, of course, abuse is too much for us. So in order to keep the love of our parents who are abusing us, we have to turn off our disgust circuit in order to be able to stay with them. There's no way to say, no, that's too much for me as a baby and have it be well-received, not in an abuse situation. So it becomes an important foundation stone for healing to begin to claim and and honor our inner knows that are saying, no, this is too much for me, helps us sleep, helps us know how much we want to eat and drink, helps us know which people are nourishing for us and which people are too much for us, mm. helps us know how much news to consume. It's a very important circuit, so I'm, I'm loving it that you let us introduce it to your listeners. Yeah. And like, even to just highlight, like sometimes when we hear, hear this word abuse, I know that some people get really triggered by these words. And to remember that we're often using the words trauma or abuse to, you know, th- there's all gradations, but like what I'm, the image that came up for me was even like the little kid who has like a stranger they've never met before that's excited to meet them. And they don't know this person and they run up and smother them with like, hugs and kisses, that could be an example of something that's really overwhelming for this small child that may not want somebody in their space. And you're made to feel awkward because this person is excited to see you. They love you. Of course you should let them in. And I just wanted to even highlight that that can be perceived as abusive. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least it could, could be a moment when the child's disgust circuit is being overridden, no, you have to kiss your Aunt Agatha. Right, right. So yeah, just naming that, like, when do we just call it nervous system override? When do we call it abuse? Like, when do we call it a preference? When do we call it a judgment? I mean, there, there's just so much charge around certain words. Yeah. I'm just naming that into the space. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, this is really beautiful, Sarah. I think that we did a pretty nice job of introducing the Enneagram community to many of the components of resonant language. And I know that you have an upcoming course that I believe by the time I launch this may have just started. If people miss like the first class, can they still sign up and get a recording of that or what is, yeah? Absolutely. They're welcome to join at any time. Excellent. And then like the previous classes will have recorded so you can kind of catch up at any place that you're at. Because I think January 31st is when your first um, class in this series of introduction to resonant language is going on for, is it eight weeks or how long is eight weeks? Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. And because this is where we learn, I think there are nine different modalities that Mm -hmm. you teach that are all different examples of resonant language. Yeah. Ways to learn If we're not going to give people advice, how the heck are we going to talk with them? Ah, yeah. And to recognize that we have all these habitual ways of trying to love each other that aren't necessarily the most skillful or helpful ways when we understand how the nervous system works. Yeah, that take a lot of decoding. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I just want to also highlight for listeners that you have two different books that they can check out. One's called Your Resonant Self, and the other one is Your Resonant Self Workbook which it is a workbook, but I always like to say there's so much new material in that one. It really feels like its own independent standing book that has work workbook activities within it. Yeah, because they, <laughs> they really don't overlap. It's not like there's one group of content. You're really continuing to expand on this. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to name also that you have offerings around Constellation 
work as well. And I would love the listeners to just know what is constellations? How would you explain that to somebody? Because that's different than resonant language and resonant healing. Yeah, constellations are where you can you can work either one on one or in a group and you say to your constellation facilitator, I have an issue. I for example, I'm always late. And then the constellation facilitator would ask some questions and then start putting out elements of the question to begin to explore it. If you're working one-on-one, that might be in a drawing or using figures. But if you're working in a larger group, it's really fun. You can have other people represent different aspects of your question. Here's Sarah. Here's lateness. Here's Sarah's grandmother, who was also always late. How do these things interact? And then then an exploration ensues, which is often very healing. It's quite a sweet way to begin to make transgenerational trauma explicit and Mm -hmm. to work with it to heal it. Yeah. And I just want to name that your work, to me, feels very embodied. Mm -hmm. You know, when we are using the Enneagram, a lot of times we're forming these cognitive structures that we can kind of follow And I find that once I have the map, it sort of connects me to these wounds in the heart. But I would say what I love so much about constellations and resonant healing is that it really allows me to take this one type of knowing and really get down into the body. And I've learned so much about how to connect with body sensations, how to slow down and just really open and feel and experience both my pain as well as the beautiful joy of accompaniment and resonance in these spaces. So I think I just would love to hear you comment on the embodiment piece, just so that listeners really understand that this isn't another cognitive structure. This is really a new way of experiencing. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yes, uh, it turns out that our our bodies give us a lot of emotional information, and when we invite them to enter the dialogue, they'll take us directly to the traumas that need to be healed, they'll take us to the emotions that need to be acknowledged and held and named, and so they provide us with a map for our healing journey, Mm. And, uh, and I think they provide us for a map for the healing journey of the Enneagram as well. Yeah. I have this fantasy of maybe writing a book one day with some like common unconscious contracts for each Enneagram type. Oh, that sounds marvelous. Yeah. And just, you know, allowing people to kind of get a little awareness into, ooh, I kind of do believe that. How interesting, you know, because I think you can start to see these patterns. And for me, it's like following a trail of breadcrumbs as I do my healing And so, you know, one thing kind of leads you to another that leads you to another. And that's why I just feel so grateful that you were here to kind of tie all these modalities together for us. Well, it's been such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. It's a sweet thing to do on a Friday morning, which is, of course, it won't necessarily be a Friday morning when people (laughs) are listening, but it's very sweet to be with you. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Sarah. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.